Listeners, this week you will notice that we have many bleeps, much bleeping going on, but we think that's a good thing because there could be children listening. This does happen among jockeys. It does, yeah. They don't fight over horses, but they do fight over girls. Whose number did they bring for you? It was Carl. Meaning? Carl Williams to come and try and defuse the situation because I thought I was going to get stabbed, punched up, I could have abducted anything, you know? I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. This week, we meet again the man we call Jock. Jock has been a prominent jockey. He rode internationally. He rode all over Australia. And he knew some of the best and worst people on the turf. Welcome back, Jock. Hi, Andrew. You've finally decided that there are a couple more stories that will get past our lawyers. Yeah, yeah, I actually went through all my journals because I'm a prolific journaler. Yeah. And even though I've um, been kicked in the head a few times and my memory's not that good, yeah. everything's written down. So um, after doing a bit of research, I yeah, seen a couple that were pretty good. Right. Now, I think you were a bit inclined to talk to blokes who like to back winners. Yeah. Or sometimes back losers. Yep. And sometimes both. Yep. Yeah, and occasionally... Both. I think, maybe like a lot of jockeys, you'd be a bit inclined to tip two horses in the same race. But what interests me is this allegation, that you tip two horses in the same race and then beat them both. Is that possibly true? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know what? I'm the world's worst at pulling them up. An English owner of mine said, Jock, you do everything right. You're a great at the fence. You're a great tactician. You're strong in a finish, but you are the world's worst at pulling them up. You're hopeless. And he's right. I I was hopeless at pulling them up. Why did he know that? Well, because I rode one for him at Wincanton, I was supposed to just give it a nice, easy run in the maiden hurdle because we we're going to take it somewhere and back it the next start. And I ran a very storming home third. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and he said uh, he weren't happy at all. But I mean, I could have, you know, kept it wide. I could have done a lot of things, but I like winning. It's, it's in me are to you, win. Are you competitive by nature more than criminal by nature? Yeah, yeah, obviously. And um, yeah, I'm hopeless to pull them up. I mean, we we got away with a lot, but. At the end, I was just betting against my own judgment, and sometimes my judgment was a bit off, and yeah. um, sometimes the people who I was working with, their judgment was shocking. So right. a couple of times horses got up that probably shouldn't have got up. I see. Now, remind us about that time when you went to a provincial course in Victoria, mm. and I think you'd managed to tip half the field and then beat it. No, but was, them. Well, it was one horse. So I was working with a uh, a guy who uh, let's, let's call him the cowboy. <laughs> yeah. We'll call him the cowboy. He was riding a, a horse uh, which was flying, won a couple of trials, and everything I was riding was favourite anyway. In the sense that the public followed you and made them favourite, not necessarily because they were the. That's right. Oh, yeah, they, they exactly. They were following me. They weren't natural favourites. They always. weren't natural. Everything yeah. I was riding was favourite because I had a huge following. In yeah. the, this is about the mid nineties. Everything I was riding was, even if it didn't deserve to be favourite, was favourite. Right. So mine was favourite, and his was ten to one. So and his was the front runner. Mine got back a little bit. So I decided to tip um, his horse to um, my then father-in-law. Um, and to a couple of other blokes who I met through the Rough Diamond, a couple of blokes, uh, three or four blokes, Albanians, I think. Were they? Were they? Were. Were they? Yeah, they were very slippery customers, these blokes. I didn't know them a great deal, but the Rough Diamond, they were mates of his, so they were connected to him. So these were pretty tasty individuals. Had a lot of cash? Oh, had heaps of cash. And right. um, at middle European sort of blokes with accents. And I didn't know a lot about them, but they didn't look like they were nice guys. So anyway, we get to the race, and the Cowboys leads as... 
he said it would, and I sit running fifth on the fence, thinking I'll run a nice, easy, maybe third. Why the, did you wanted to run a place? I wanted well, the girl who who owned this horse was oh my, she was a, she was a cracking good sort. She was from Berwick, and wow, she was she was beautiful, and so <laughs> I still wanted to have good favour with them with, right. with the owners. So I didn't want to not to run anywhere. So you didn't want to murder the horse. I didn't want to murder the horse no. because I wanted to keep in sweet with with her, but also. I tipped the cowboy's horse. Anyway, the cowboy's horse led, got the coming to the home turn, and it went from travelling to under the whip. And I look up and I think, oh, here we go again, sort of thing. And it's not travelling well. It's, it's, it's under. The, it's th- under. the thing you've tipped that they've backed, yep. the dangerous guys, yep. is under the whip. Under the whip. And your horse is going easy. That you want to run third or fourth and just look nice. Going easy. It's going easy. So your choice is clear. You could either run off wide and uh, get it beaten or... Oh, or, yeah, 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 for know. sure. Or, or jump off it. Lo- I could have lose, done a lot lose of things. a stirrup? Lose a stirrup. I could have done a lot of things. But and, you didn't. Well, when you've got a couple of seconds to think and you don't realise there could be consequences because I'd already been in this position once before, a few years back. Cut along through a short. <laughs> I loom up beside the cowboy and yell at him, right? And then my thing wins by, you know, three quarters of a length, you know, going easy. So I think I'm in the doghouse because the father-in-law, he's had all his money on so he's not going to be happy, but I'll get over that. But these Albanian guys, I'll just bullshit them. Well, that didn't work because they knew a bit about racing. They did. And when I went and spoke to them and said I'd make it up to them, I said, I couldn't have done this, could have done that. They said, bullshit, you could have done this, you could have done that. And I thought, what, these blokes know what they're talking about a little bit. They gave scenarios of how you could have lost the race yeah, yeah, and I, got they, away with it. Yeah, they told me and heaps is, is that the races that, that you spoke Yeah, to? yeah. I went and met them out in the car park right. sort of thing. And then um, the idea was to meet them back in Melbourne. And, right. and as I said, they weren't very happy. And anyway, I tried to fob them off and say I'd, I'd meet them the next day. But they weren't having that. They turned up at my house. I, I don't know how they knew where I lived, but they yeah. did. And yeah. they turned up and there was a carload of them, yeah. right? They wanted me to come out, and I think I, I think no, something's going to happen here. So I am, walked out, met them, got in the car. They we drove, stopped at a place called La Finestra, which was a, a restaurant owned by a mate of mine. So you stopped at a restaurant. Stopped owned. at a restaurant, and we're talking, and I'm trying to calm these blokes down, trying to work out how much money they've lost, and trying to convince them that I'll get it back for them. And so we're, we're sitting in the restaurant, and there was one little one that was giving me a hard time, and really he was getting pissed off. The more the talk went, the more he was getting pissed off. And you got concerned? I got very concerned. And um, the owner of the restaurant, his ears picked up. Did he? Uh, yeah. And Henry, uh, and he sort of come over to me and says, everything all right? And I said, yeah, yeah. But um, well, what I'd done was I went for a piss and called Henry over and said, bring this number and tell him I need him here now. Whose number did they bring for you? It was Carl. Meaning? Carl Williams to come and ha- try and defuse the situation because I thought I was going to get stabbed punched up i could have abducted anything you know yeah carl williams down and uh sort of that you know what i don't know whether carl give him money warned him i don't know what he done but i never heard from him again so never even seen him again so carl saved your bacon he did oh well i'd saved him a few times he got got knifed one day at um he got glass at kramer's one day and i i took him to pants hospital so he he owed you one he owed me one yeah well there you go fair enough my name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. 
I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Now, that's one story about tough times in the saddle. Just before we get to another Carl Williams story, which I know you have, there was a time when you had a very serious fall and almost died. Is that right? Which one? <laughs> well, you had a lot of serious falls. 1991, I went through the wing, broke my leg, compound fracture leg, shattered the elbow, but I punctured a lung. Now, when they were working on me, they were obviously worried about the, the arm and the leg, didn't realise they had a punctured lung. And when you puncture a lung, your blood pressure plummets. So you go from screaming and grabbing and trying to breathe to unconscious. You go, you're unconscious. Yeah. And they had to uh, revive me on the way to Dandenong Hospital. I was pretty lucky not to, yeah, not to croak at that time. I think the one you're talking about is 94. Yeah. In Adelaide. In the state. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, this is a bizarre story because the week before... I was pretty good mates with a guy called John McMillan. We were good mates. John Johnny was a good guy. We'd had a fight, a falling out over a girl, and got into a punch-up and got fined $100 at Hamilton. This does happen among jockeys. It does, yeah. They don't fight over horses, but no, they do no, fight no, over they girls. Yeah, that's, yeah, they do. So anyway, um, we both got fined 100 bucks. We weren't talking to each other. And I'm in Adelaide riding a horse called Goodwood Lass, who had a bit of a reputation of not being too safe in the Irish race. So we'll be on the barriers. And John says to me, hey, watch her, she's dodgy. And I think I'm trying to get f***ed or something because we weren't talking. Yeah. We were fighting. So anyway, we go down and jump. One, two, we go down to the third. Mine stands off from a long way back, hits the top, somersaults, I fall, get kicked in the head, swallow my tongue. John falls independently at the same fence, doesn't get hurt, bounces to his feet and says, I told you about her, she was dodgy. What no one knew was John McMillan had done a first aid course because he's going for a scuba diving ticket. Of all the things. Of all the people. The only scuba diving jockey in yep, the Southern Hemisphere. The only one, had done a, the only yeah. one who had done a first aid course fell at the same jump as me, never got hurt, and was there. He said, he said, I looked over at the ambulance drivers and I was around trying to get the, the back of the ambulance to come and get you. And I'm yelling at him, this guy can't breathe. He's turning purple. Get over here. So he said he just took his skull cap off. And immediately rendered first aid. Put his uh, fingers down my throat, pulled my tongue back, yeah. give me mouth to mouth, got me breathing again. Saved my life. Saved your life. Now, I know you're not terribly religious. Yeah. Possibly not. <laughs> Although probably you should be. You should be, And yeah. um, you reckon later you had dreams about this? I had this bizarre dream. It must have been a dream. It couldn't, this couldn't have been real. I had this vision of these guys, of John McMillan, ambulance guys working on me on the track. I'm looking down and seeing this, and then all of a sudden I hear footsteps, someone walking. And it was at Flinders Medical Centre, I heard these footsteps, and I, 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 my eyes open, and I see Andrea, who was then my girlfriend, coming. It had to be a dream, it couldn't have been real. And you've had that dream since? All the time. Is that right? Mm. So that was probably your closest brush with death. For sure. Was that luck, fate, or was that, what was that? Of course, you led a dangerous life, uh, I have to say. Well, I've seen and some pretty hairy things on the track. I mean, Simon Mills, Darren Gouchy, where they both probably should have been killed. And Simon Mills in the Great Eastern, when he got dragged over that fence, I was right behind him. Yeah. And I said to Frank Stockdale, he's dead. Yeah. 
and he got a broken arm. He should have been killed. I yeah. mean, yeah, how can you explain that? Yeah, it was an extraordinary scene. But there were other ways you lived dangerously. And one of them was with the bloke you mentioned earlier, Carl Williams, a guy who actually saved your bacon with the Albanians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did save my bacon, didn't you? There was another occasion, I think, and you'll know this better than I do, where he came to a function, perhaps a barbecue, yeah, at your place or your brother's place. Or yeah, something. yeah. Well, you, Can you recall? That? Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember we having a barbecue at, at, at in, in Hampton, my place in Hampton, because it had a pool and and stuff like that. And my older brother, he was working in the financial world, you know, financial advisor he was, and he got talking to Carl because Carl had a couple of really hot Harley Davidsons at his plush um, place in um, Brunswick. Carl went riding them, so my older brother said. Beauty, can I come and borrow them? No problem. Come borrow them anytime you want. They got talking. They must have got talking about investing money or trying to wash money because something happened where Carl gives my older brother a large amount of money to invest. Or when you say a large amount, you're talking the price of well, you know, 50000 Was it? Yeah. 50000 it was. And my older brother had got a tip on some shares. He weren't in the stock market, but he seemed to um, think that these shares were a good punt. Where did he got that tip from? I, I, I said to him, I said, where, where did you get this from? From a, another jockey's another account. Another jockey's account. I said, how would he? I just I couldn't believe it. Anyway, he said, I've lost Carl's money. It's all gone. Good. How long did that take? Uh, about two days. <laughs> Is that right? So anyway, um, yeah. So, so I how did you feel about that? Well, I was in the kitchen because my older brother, he had a really troubled look on his face. I said, oh, I said what's wrong? What's happened? He goes, oh, you're not going to like this. I said, well, try me, right? And he goes, he told me the story. <laughs> and I thought he was joking. I started laughing. And he goes, no, I'm serious. He goes, what will happen? I said, well, I haven't got 50 grand laying around. Let me ring him and get him over there. And, and he went, actually, he weren't too bad about it. Yeah. Because he realised it was he was punting. So cash was coming pretty easy to him back <laughs> in them days. So, oh, well, 50 grand, 50 grand. But I did feel pretty guilty about it. And then when he did ask me for a favour... I said, yeah, no problem. Um, and that was sort of the, the payoff in a sense. Ba- basically, yeah, because I and felt what, bad, what, you know. What was the uh, – well, this is the thing about knowing crooks when they yeah. want a favour. Carl, at that time, was really hot. He was really hot with surveillance and mics and bugs and stuff like that. Um, Meaning always, the he, police were, had him under some constant oh, yeah, surveillance. Yeah, and he used to always say to me, don't speak in the cars. He was very very careful like that. But to, I had no criminal record at that stage, so I was a clean skin. So he wanted uh, me to hold on to something for him for a while. Um, what, cash? Well, I don't know what it was, but all I know was about a kilo and a half. It was uh, in tin foil, and this, whatever it was, absolutely stunk. It reeked. In a, something like a Tupperware container? Yeah, yes, Tupperware container. But you don't think it was a fruitcake? It definitely wasn't a, f- a fruitcake. Um, you don't think it was Antec biscuits? He told me not to look in it, but I couldn't help myself. I did, and it was a substance, but it stunk like wet cement. It was really and I had to put it in another a cake tin or something, yeah. you know, just to... And where did you put it? I was the only one who could cook in my place. I mean, yeah. Andrea could not boil an egg. Right. Her mother was a brilliant cook, but she was hopeless. Right. So I put it in the top shelf of my pantry where we kept spaghetti, rice. We kept a lot of dry, um, like, oregano and herbs and stuff like that. In fact, I put it in there. So I thought no one's going to go in the pantry. I'm the only one that cooks. I'll put it up there. It'll be safe. Well, she had some people coming over from Sri Lanka, uh, relatives, and she was going to decide to help them out with some odds and ends and pillows and sheets and 
bit of cooking stuff, some spaghetti, some rice, <laughs> and a tin of the <laughs> the oregano. Yeah, and um, that went missing. Um, so you. So here's the thing. You've come home. I, I no, I'm coming home from the track from Epson, and she rings me and she said, "I've just been to our place." I said, "What for?" She goes, "Well, you know." My cousins and I have just landed from Sri Lanka. I'm, you know, I thought we'd do the right thing and help them out a bit. I said, uh, yeah, what with? She goes, oh, a bit of this, a bit of that, and a bit of food and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, no. So I went right home and I looked and it was gone. But luckily I had cut her off at Deer Park where her mum lived, got into her car and got it uh, without her knowing. And, wow, um, the mind boggles, I mean... If it had ended up in the wrong place, I mean... Could have been dangerous for the recipients, but uh, also um, yeah. d- not real good for you. No, Second no, time round. No, well, yeah, Carl wouldn't have been too happy. And then that day I said, mate, you've got to get your stuff out of there. I can't keep it there. I only had a heart attack over that. How was it picked up and taken away? Um, yeah, well, he had someone come and pick it up. When I told him what happened, he just laughed and said, oh, you, you, should, you should have left it with them. They were, at least I would have got over their jet lag quick, so... <laughs> You always thought things were a great, great laugh. Um, you always made a joke out of everything. This is Carl Williams. Your, I think, cricket you used to play street cricket with him as a kid. With Carl. I knew Carl when, like, he was running around, you know, stealing, you know, um, VCRs and stuff. Because I brought I brought my first one from him. So we were mates. I was going out with a, uh, an Indian girl uh, named Gwen, and she introduced me to the Williams because they were mad punters. Yeah. And she was going out with a jockey, and yeah. that's how we met. Right mm. now, you're. Girlfriend, a kind-hearted religious one. Andrea, yep. She was quite uh, an unusual partner for someone like you. Even though you didn't have a criminal record, you were a little bit colourful. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And you ha- certainly hung around with a lot of colourful people. She was um, she was as straight as an arrow. Was she? She was as straight as an arrow. She, If she got a parking ticket, she would you know, lose a week's sleep. Right. Straight as an arrow. Religious yeah. pictures on the wall? Yeah, yeah. Well, she used to think God was watching us in everything we did, and I said he's got he's got better things to do than watch us. So, um, used to try and take me to church, and yeah, um, right. I said I was afraid of bursting in the flames if I ever went to church. Yeah. Um, when I had that fall in Adelaide, she uh, she came over with my mum and and uh, brought holy water and tipped it on my head every day in the hospital. In the hospital, my mum said, "Oh, you know, Andrew's been tipping holy water on your head." I said, "Are you serious?" And yeah, so that's what she was a straight shooter. Paid her bills, done everything by the law, and she's... Whose with, car did she drive? She, well, her first car was a Honda Accord, um, and it was a Carmel Mockbell's car. Was it? But yeah. she didn't know that. She Well, she knew Tony and uh, Carl, my friends, and she said, they're really nice guys, you know, you should hang out more they with them. didn't know their surnames or what they did for a living? No, it was pretty early on then. They sort of hadn't hit the media yeah. by then, but right. uh, when the bodies and that started to stack up, she... What was her she, description she, of those two fellows? She said, they're good guys. You spend more time with them. Tony. Tony's a lovely family man. You should spend more time with him. Oh, you know, right. I, I met his wife and we got the car and, and stuff like that. And I said, would well, you like the car? She goes, yeah. I said, don't go talking in it, whatever you do. In case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she couldn't work out what I was talking about. But as life rolled on and as the years rolled on, she, well, she obviously reads the paper and, and watches the news. Yeah. And she sort of, sort of started to pick up who these people were and how dangerous they were and like you gotta understand something. If anything went wrong, she'd she'd be the first one to pick up the phone and call the cops. Right. For anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So So you went to different ways? Well yeah, but look, we were different people. We were completely from I don't know how we got together, I've got no idea. But we were together for ten years. And we had a really had a really good relationship. I mean, we we're both opposites attract, they say. So we were completely opposite. Her father didn't mind a bet though, did he? 
It uh, wasn't a father, it was a stepfather. Um, oh, he followed me when I had those golden years when I was winning everything. He was on board with every one of them. So, you know, the fact that he'd he done his money at Ballarat, I thought, oh, well, you know, I didn't like him anyway. He didn't like me, So, to be oh, honest. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I didn't lose any sleep over that. I know you've ridden overseas, but also overseas jockeys have come and ridden here. Yeah. And you did once tell me a story about an Irish jockey who came out here, and I think he might have... <laughs> He might have fallen at the first. John John McCormack, yeah. John McCormack was he wasn't really well known, but he was a good guy. He could ride a bit. And he came over and he we were riding work at Robbie Lang's, I was riding for Robbie and then McCormack was there and he was riding for Robbie and we got him a ride at Cassidy, his first ride in Australia. And we drive him, we go on the races and um we get to Cassidy and he looks at the fences, he goes, Are they the fences? And we said, Yeah, he laughed and said, I can ride the head off this because their fences are huge in Ireland yeah, yeah. compared to those little Cassidy fences. So anyway, he rides this horse which is a bit dodgy. We're trained by an ex-shearer, and he was crazy, right? <laughs> so, you know, he's riding this thing, and it's leading, but it's never scored around Castanon, so it starts to shift around a little bit. Anyway, it throws McCormack off, uh, runs off, it goes for the barbed wire, McCormack lands on the fence, and, you know, the, the fence is in Australia, to take off. It's their logs. Yeah. They're hard, you know, hard logs. So, he breaks his pelvis. He's laying in the middle of the jump. and this just. Is- First ride in First this country. First ride in Australia, right? Anyway, my younger brother had rode ladies' men of O'Leary's and fallen as well. So my younger brother jumps to his feet and says, McCormack, you all right? He goes, you better get up because the field's coming around again. Because at Cassidon, they go twice, and when you go over the open country, it, it, there's a fence in the middle of a paddock. So there's nowhere for horses to run off if a jockey gets injured yeah, like he was. Yep. And they either have to stop the race or... They'd done what they did, and what they did was bizarre. I still can't believe what they did. He was on the middle of the fence with a broken pelvis. Lying he on the ground. He, can't, he said, I can't move, right? They're going to have to run over me. And the blokes that were supposed to be safety blokes put a witch's hat either side of him, and the field the field just went either side of him. And it's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. He just closed his eyes. Obviously, he never got run over, but I told Richard Dunwoody that story when I was in England. Richard Dunwoody's one of the big, big, big top jump joggers of all time. And he said, no, nah, that wouldn't have happened. I said, I'm telling you, it did. Is that right? And, um, yeah, the, the boys in, in the UK were just, they couldn't believe, they couldn't believe yeah. it. So, um, yeah, that, that happened. And um, the funny thing was that um, the doctor who uh, had a look at John said, oh, you're badly bruised. Yeah. He must have been drunk because he had a broken pelvis. And um, and the trainer, yeah. <laughs> he'd come in and he said, yeah, you're schooling this horse, the McCormack. He goes, oh, mate, I can't move. He goes, Dr. Tommy, you're only bruised. He goes, and he said, that'd be right. These f-ing blokes from Ireland, they come over and get on work cover. It's unbelievable. Oh. <laughs> Jock, thanks once more for coming back. Uh, we might get you back some other time soon, I hope. I can't wait. <laughs> a reminder that we have a Q&A special coming up. So if you have crime-related questions, or any others within reason, you can send them to heraldsun.com.au forward slash crime questions. Crime questions is just one word. Or you can email us at lifeandcrimes at news.com.au. Who knows? We might even know the answers. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. 
From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilant. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.